0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of New Books Network. I am Lee Pierce, hostess with the most of your channels in language and media and communication. And I am very excited today to welcome another colleague in the world of rhetoric. And that is Michelle Kennerly, uh, just down the road at Penn State University, who recently published Editorial Bodies Perfection and Rejection in Ancient Rhetoric and Poetics. And Editorial Bodies comes to us from the University of South Carolina Press. So shout out USC Press. And uh, it's, it's an interesting look at this thing we're always talking about, which is the oral written divide or binary or relationship, however you want to think of it. And it gets reimagined and reinvestigated in the book uh, because even though the uh, so ancient Greece, Greek and Roman cultures, which is what Michelle studies in the book, are typically considered oral cultures. They... Like, spoke most of their, that's at least how we think of it. Um, but in the book, uh, Dr. Kennelly argues that these efforts also had a lot of textual culture, uh, tex- texture to them, right? Textual texture it, enabled by efforts to perfect, publish, and preserve both new and old writing. And Dr. Kennelly argues that such efforts were commonly articulated through the extended metaphor of the body, hence editorial bodies. They were also supported by people on whom writers relied for various kinds of assistance and necessitated by lively debates about what sort of words should be put out and remain in public. And of course that's important because one of the big problems with our field has been this attention to textuality at the expense of everything else. And so it's really interesting to see how these great names that uh, echo through the book, you know, Cicero and Quintilian had many people involved in that labor. And so it undoes this kind of great name thesis in some ways, which is always work we need to keep doing. It spans ancient Athenian, Alexandrian, and Roman textual cultures. In each case, showing that orators and poets attributed public value to their seemingly inward turning compositional labors. There's all sorts of interesting wordplay establishing key terms of writing and editing uh, Dr. Kennerly focuses on works from specific orators and poets writing in Latin in the first century BCE and the first century CE. So like I mentioned, Cicero, Quintilian, but also Horace, Ovid, Tacitus, and Pliny, the Younger. And to quote the book jacket, the result is a rich and original history of rhetoric that reveals the emergence and endurance of vocabularies, habits, and preferences that sustained ancient textual cultures. This major contribution to rhetorical studies unsettles longstanding assumptions about rhetoric and poetics of this era, by means of generative readings of both well-known and understudied text. I'm thrilled to have Michelle with us. Michelle, are you still there? I am indeed. Terrific. Well, thanks for the book. It was such an interesting read. It's one of those books I'm definitely going to have to pause and go through again, probably several times, just to catch all your quippy translation cleverness. But for now, do you want to give everybody just a quick bio and an overview of the book and what you think sort of the coolest parts are?
1: I would be thrilled to do that. Thanks very much. First of all, let me thank you for reading the book and for yeah. featuring it on the podcast. I'm thrilled and tickled with <laughs> your interest. And I would love to just say a couple of uh, introductory remarks about myself. I am currently an associate professor of communication arts and sciences, and by courtesy, Classics and Ancient Mediterranean Studies at Penn State. And I, as an undergraduate, studied classics and religion, but decided I didn't really want to flex that way when I could torque towards something that I could. <laughs> oh, I'm stealing that.
0: I'm <laughs> stealing it right now. I'm writing it down. I'm stealing it. I'll tell you, listeners, these people from composition—they they know how to use a word, man. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I could have gone, you know, the straight arrow way toward classics and the study of early Christianity, but I decided to to shimmy over toward rhetorical studies because I thought it had uh, certain kinds of capacities and tendencies that were a lot more in keeping with my own sensibilities. For instance, uh, you know, I, I like being able to translate Cicero's first Catalinarian, say, in Latin, but I love being able to talk about why it is ted cruz would use passages from that speech in a senate floor debate where he's trying to make obama out to be a, a rebel of the republic mm-hmm. so it was really uh, interest in how these ancient materials are enlivened and made mobile in other cultural contexts that made rhetorical studies an area of great interest to me and so this book you could on the one hand say that it's kind of been in motion since I was an undergraduate but you could also say truthfully that I wrote a lot of it in a very painful (laughs) six-week hyper writing exercise uh, trying to make all of my deadlines to go up for tenure so it's both a book of uh, that's had a long bake and it's one that uh, sort of emerged from some late night lucubrations (laughs) A couple of years ago,
0: and I Especially feel like I, I need to make a joke here, me. like about the bake, like oh, it came out hot from the oven. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like trying to like match your funny, but I'm not that clever. Well, I'm mixing all kinds of metaphors. So I love I'm that. Gonna dump oh, it. Dump another one in there. I'm here for everything that's happening. Okay, so Just add, which I add add think is common. Heat. I mean, I'd I'd really love to have honestly. We we have this new books follow up um where we talk about we bring new authors back after we've kind of talked about the book that have things in common and. Sometimes we do talk about the writing and publishing process, because I think it's so mystified for people. And I think everybody thinks that they're the only one who did this under tenure pressure. But I've rarely heard anyone say they didn't. And it's interesting that we don't all know that, that we don't all know that this is what everyone else is doing, that we think it's this thing we did that was bad. You know, like, oh, I had to push it through in six weeks to get it done. And it's like, "Ah, I think everybody kind of banged out their their first book, but like that. I think so. There's yeah.
1: a, a little bit of shame involved, and I think no, a that's great. Bit, and I think a little bit too. We all sort of want to be regarded as these houdini's that just pull these perfect products out of a hat. And yeah, but but I think that's that's actually part of the joy of writing this book for me is I really yes, wanted to bring sure. out how much everyone huffs and puffs to write. Uh, even those people who we think about as being the solitary genius were struggling and had yep. a lot of people helping them and supporting them and. Uh, suffering through it with them to help them get the work done. So I'm really demystifying the solitary genius uh, throughout the work. But really what I set out to do was to see how ancient writers, and I focused just on orators and poets, not philosophers or historians, though they're sometimes interweaved, how they attempted to set the conditions for their own canonization at Mm. a time when we know that there were pretty big media revolutions in play. So for instance, we see an uptake in the use of the papyrus book roll, and we see new uses for wax tablets, we see the beginning of the introduction of the codex made out of animal skin, and all of these authors are writing into and onto that new medium, recognizing that if they're going to be able to outlast their own lives, They're going to have to commit their words to these materials that can travel after they die. So there's always a little bit of the morose here too, and that all of the authors are highly aware of their own mortality and are trying to, to outpace it by putting into the world a text that will endow them with a reputation that will outlast them. Mm.
0: So yeah, it makes, it we think makes about me think of that being... Bonnie Dow piece about the public sphere versus the private sphere, the, that old piece about the feminine private sphere. Do you remember, do you know what I'm talking about? I do. Yeah. Cause it's like this obsession with like legacy among, well, primarily men, right. That Like, Oh, I got a like legacy, you know, I'm going to leave a legacy. That seems to drive a lot of these textual cultures and, and oral cultures that we've seen and nobody talks about it it's like just what people it's like oh this is how great writing's produced it's like yeah but it's also produced from a deep anxiety about like whether people remember you which is weirdly individualistic and kind of resonates with what we're seeing happening now a lot
1: yes it is individualistic yeah. and i think a lot of these authors too were able to exploit an additional larger cultural anxiety i'm talking here about romans because rome mm, yeah at this point and by that i mean the time of cicero in through when Tastus is writing was establishing itself as the dominant power in the ancient Mediterranean, but they were the dominant military power, not really a dominant cultural power. They're also mm. the dominant legal power. They had a a very strong live legal system that was really adaptive to different locations, mm. but they were aware that they had no Homer among them. They had no Sappho,
0: <laughs> you mm. know, they had no
1: epic or lyric poet who could really commit to these writing materials all of their military exploits and make them seem something other than uh, brutish yeah. and imperial and and hyper dominant and a lot of our poets then you know ease themselves into that situation and say ah oh, well if you Augustus say really want someone who can capture, in a way that will echo throughout eternity what you are doing, you really need a good poet like myself. So how about mm-hmm. you throw me a, a country house where I can write quietly? How about you make sure I can get lots of copyists from my books? And how about you start mm-hmm. some public libraries and put my books in it? So you can see how these enterprising poets, a lot of whom are sort of considered upstarts by, from the Roman perspective, they're not born in Rome. Uh, Horace is the son of a freed, formerly enslaved person. So these are people who don't really have the bona fides, but they're able to exploit Roman anxiety about its lack of cultural dominance of having Mm. great literature, in other words, to perpetuate their own power and fame.
0: It's quite clever. It is. I'm going to go pop culture for a second. There's this trope and I use that in like the TV sense of the word, not in the rhetorical sense of the word, where you're watching shows. I just saw it recently in The Witcher, but with um, oh, what's the hottie guy, super band dude. But I've seen it other places where there's like these reluctant heroes, which is always a hilarious because it's like, yeah, I've never known a reluctant hero in my whole life. Uh, and, <laughs> and then there's these bards and the bards are like begging them to turn them into legends. And the reluctant hero is like, don't sing about me. I don't want anyone to know. And reading the book, I was like, yeah, this is totally way more the way it would have played out, that they're walking around like, oh, you need to be famous. I need to be famous. Let's make each other famous. Like, exactly. contractual. You think of it as this like artistic, beautiful relationship born of like reluctance. And but I mean, it's just a, strange, right? a lot of these are really transactional. And it's nice to see that because we romanticize the way some of this stuff gets done. And it it makes it feel like disconnected. But you've made it feel very connected to what I think of as the present, you know?
1: Thank you. Yeah, I would say there's a lot of mutual reliance and perhaps mutual exploitation going mm. on, but I think there's also a pretty fun recognition on the part of poets that there are certain kind of poetry they're more equipped to write than others. So Horace, oh, yeah. for instance, says again and again, I don't write epic. That is not what I do. I'm much more comfortable writing chatty Small, yeah. kind of close to the ground type of poetry. And so he does end up calling one of his books of poetry Sermones, which is Latin for sort of chats. It's oftentimes translated as satires, which I think is a bit of a stretch because it really just hmm. means, you know, chit chat. And a lot of it right. is philosophical and a little bit moralistic, but it's definitely not epic. Yeah. So you have people No, are- it's
0: like Mark Twainian. That's sort of the feel I got from it. It is. Yes, it I is great. 20. Yeah, I, I hated to like, but as I'm reading, I'm like, what do you call this? It's like it's like banter, but that's not really a genre. But it has sort of this, yeah, sort of like quippy, aphoristic sort of feel to it.
1: I think banter yeah. would actually be a great translation of sermones as well.
0: Okay, cool. sort of this I went sort of,
1: Avuncular, yeah,
0: yeah good. Good, good too. Yeah,
1: yeah. So even poets, even though they want to make a name for themselves, they realize their own natural limits, you know, the limits mm-hmm. of their talents, and they realize, you know, if I go for epic. You know, maybe my poetic gifts just aren't such that I can soar at those heights. But it also is the case that if you attempt to write an epic about a powerful person and they don't like it, things Mm. can go quite south for you. So it could have been a protective measure that Horace only uh, sort of uses the humility trope to disguise. But it's always hard to tell with him because he's extremely clever and trying to figure out when an ancient writer is being ambiguous or sarcastic is hermeneutically challenging
0: i can only imagine
1: but i've been focusing a lot on horace that wasn't really my plan but he. well let's do it do you, you have anything else favorite. to say about
0: horace it's a cool chapter um or are we
1: just over that i i hope just in general the way that i pair orators and poets in the book will give emerging scholars of antiquity license to do the same sort of thing in what they're writing i think people who study ancient rhetoric have for too long left the poets out of the story. And Mm. I hope my book gives people reason to invite them back in. I mean, you have just for literal biographical reasons, I think good reason to bring them in. Horace and Ovid had the best rhetorical training of the day, both in Rome and then they went to Athens too for an additional top up on their education. So just for reasons of biography, there's good reason to treat them as rhetorical creatures. But then when you start reading their poetry, you can see evidence of that training in every line.
0: Yeah, you use this phrase in the introduction when you talk about this exact decision in the book called Hick Lieber, which I thought maybe meant like making an archive ad hoc but I couldn't really tell cuz I don't have the vocab but um so there's so much untranslated ancient language in here I did not no, I love it it's great so and much. then I got to like try it's like when you read the soap bottle in Spanish to see how much you can figure out it was sort of like that I was like maybe I can figure <laughs> this out just from context but yeah but and you say that you you um you say a, a key explanation for, for your decision, right? The, the, it, part of it's the body language that you notice this thread running yes. through, all, through all of them, that there's this corporeal body type of language. That means that even if they're writing in two different genres and we think of them as two different, like something is happening that's making them work together at, at a much more fundamental level. That's more interesting to me than like particular pieces or texts. Right. And then you say it's a line that starts in fifth century BCE Athens extends to Hellenistic textual centers, such as Alexandria and Terminates, for my purposes, Rome. The line is of course not really a line, but the zigs and zags and the accidents and serendipities and the fashions and lulls that meant some part of a writer's corpus survived and another did not are difficult to trace. What is remarkable is that particular Athenian writers seem to have set the terms for what counts as worth pursuing for and preserving from an orator or a poet and themselves to have been continually served by those criteria. They created the critical conditions for their own canonicity. So you're tracing like both the conditions of emergence and the emergence. It's super dope. I loved it. I I think, I love this idea of like breaking down the barriers between poets and like what we might call like, I don't know, public writers or whatever, because they do have, and we saw this with Amanda Gorman, right? Like you can't talk about the 2021 inauguration without Gorman's poem. Nobody Like you can't talk about it well. So I think we're seeing, I I, I like that we're seeing that come back after kind of like denigrating poetics, I think a lot for the last couple, I don't know, centuries, decades, not sure. I'm a bad historian. (laughs) Yeah, well, um, I mean, Jeffrey Walker, who's... Oh yeah, Mm -hmm.
1: go ahead. I was just gonna say Jeffrey Walker's book called Rhetoric and Poetics in Antiquity. Yes. Didn't start out. He didn't start out to write a book about that. He wanted to write about uh, modern contemporary poetry, but he was trying to figure out how poetry became considered uh, or became useless. That was people's idea of it. It didn't actually Uh do anything, that it wasn't pragmatic. It was only symbolic or formulaic. And he, in an effort to figure out when this started, found himself back in antiquity, trying to show that that wasn't originally the case, that poetry is endowed with its own kind of uh, political pulse, and it's yes. different from rhetoric mainly because it has a different history and it has different, you know, genre traditions. But it is out there uh, in a way that you know, romantic poems aren't always. And yeah. So when Horace, you know, writes about seeing a cloud, it's not the same as when you know Wordsworth writes about seeing a cloud. Right. <laughs> those poems are right. doing very. The cloud is doing different work in those poems.
0: Yeah. And I think breaking down the sort of what we might call like a hierarchy between them is really important because so one of the things I'm learning as I'm I'm foraying more and more into black feminist studies. And and you'll see like the the New Books Network interviews I'm doing trying to move more in that trajectory. And I just did just an awesome interview with Kevin Quashi on his fourth book, Black Aliveness. And it is just oh, I am not a poetry person, but holy shit, do I love poetry criticism? And he just (laughs) is. I mean, um, the work he does on these poems is incredible. And one of the things we talked about when, when we interviewed is like, yeah, this denigration of poetics, it's a white, it's a privileged white people thing. Like it's what it's what white America has done because they don't need poetry. But like in other fields where marginalized people are centered, this has always been so crucial to what we think of as thought. And I was like, man, that's so true. Because even though I believe that poetics are important. I've never really thought that, like, even my own internalization of like, yeah, poetry really doesn't align, like, it aligns a lot with privilege. And and you're kind of pointing that out in here, which is the poets keep certain pulses alive in the textual cultures and in the ideology that you lose when you think of the, you don't think of them as co-creating the cultures, right? If I'm paraphrasing you correct. Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, this book's got all kinds of things going for it. Do you want to go on to like another maybe highlights? Because- there's just so much to talk about and we can't leave it at Horace.
1: <laughs> sure. Yes. I will talk a little bit about chapter two called Hellenistic gloss, which moves yeah, us a good one. from ancient Athens, which is typically called classical Athens. The time period I'm looking at anyway, which is the end of the Greco-Persian war in through uh, the death of Demosthenes, Isocrates, Philip Alexander, and then we have the birth of the so-called Hellenistic age, which is meant to be at a remove from the classical, uh, both chronologically, but also in terms of the traditionally considered worthiness of everything created during that cultural period. So the second chapter really takes issue with the uh, sort of pejorative nature of the term Hellenistic. I mean, it is both historical period, and in that way it's fairly neutral. But Hellenistic material, when people call something that, there's typically a kind of a sneer to it, as if Mm. this is kind of derivative. These people were able to uh, copy the works of classical Athenian writers, and then they made kind of their own versions of it, but they're all kind of secondary, not as strong. Uh, They're overly imitative. And I just dismiss all of that snobbery and say, we need to consider (laughs) places like Alexandria as uh, you know, first rate creators of oratory poetry, history, early bibliographical techniques, Biblio, that's not a word, bibliographical techniques.
0: And oh, I don't think you and I need to be concerned about what's a word or not. You have earned the right to make up all the words you want.
1: <laughs> well, that one just sounded better in the cadence of my sentence, but it isn't that I Not it. a word. <laughs> so, yes, I wanted to focus in on a place that we knew was incredibly bookish and, and bookish in both this lovely, nerdish sense that I completely endorse and empathize with. But bookish in the sense of encyclopedic, that a lot of the people who settled in Alexandria were there because it was a center of learning and of wide scope. So that was the place to go if you wanted to study geometry, if you wanted to study uh, philosophy, if you wanted to study poetry, that was where you would go because you could both access one of the best libraries of that time. And you were also around a lot of other people who were there to learn from the texts that were in the library, but also innovate upon them and allude yeah. to them in ways that are not derivative, but are actually uh, scholarly sometimes, and oftentimes quite rebellious. So, you know, who is yes. this Homer? We consider him, you know, the poet, but, you know, could I maybe change the seagoing going? hero trope in a way that points out the kinds of things that homer let himself get away with right. And we see we see certain authors doing that with their own sea journeys such as the areopagitica or no that's not the correct word um argonautica that's what i'm looking for jason the argonaut so we have jason as this kind of squirt of a hero who uses Medea to get what he wants. Yeah. And then we know from, from later plays of, from classical Athens, you know, treats her very badly. And, you know, she ends up on top there as we know. Mm -hmm. So in other words, these are, are, are not people assembled in Alexandria who are bemoaning the fact that they are operating in Uh, times that don't have the sheen and shine of classical Athens. They are not writing in a fallen culture. It's an incredibly lively, generative, productive place and time. And it's because of all the activities in places like Alexandria that the Romans end up with texts of both classical Athens and of Hellenistic Alexandrian period, and are able to then, in their turn, build on this tradition Subvert the tradition, rebel against their tradition in ways that we see in Cicero, Horace, Ovid, Quintilian, Pliny, and Tacitus.
0: Yeah, and um, oh gosh, all I do is just refer people to other books. But have you read, uh, it made me think of, have you read uh, Mythswood Myths, and Sutton's uh, Revolution and Tropes? Not only have I read it, I also have a chapter in it. <laughs> that's what you do i see i interviewed them i interviewed them so i i didn't we didn't we didn't talk about your chapter because we felt weird talking about you i think they shouted you out i totally forgot man you got a hand in everything okay well anyway (laughs) i guess you don't need to hear the amazing connection i was gonna make now because you already know it because you are you wrote you helped them write that book oh never mind well anyway i will just say the, yeah, the, the pressure, the, the way that you bring in the margins as part of the conversation, really, I mean, it almost in some ways, this is what's so interesting about when everyone's afraid to like deconstruct the greats, because it's like, actually they get more interesting when they're part of a larger conversation than when they're just solo ex nihilo creating things like just, you know what I mean? they're so much better when they're in yes. tension and conversation, like they are in your book than when it's just like these straight single text analysis or biographies and all that jazz so I mean it was really it was really cool and I want to read you to you on page 54 (laughs) and I will let the reader the listener know I'm gonna recommend you buy the book at the end of the interview but I will also say if you like me are finishing up a book do not read this book because the writing is so good you will then want to go back and burn down your entire book so I'm going to read you some sentences (laughs) but if you're currently finishing a book plug your ears and if you're finishing a dissertation, don't worry, because you have no business caring about word wordplay. Just get it done. Okay, so scholarship of the past few decades has pressed hard on all of those assumptions and evaluations that you just mentioned about Hellenistic stuff. Calling this chapter Hellenistic gloss, I fix attention on the stylistic sheen and so-called scholarly apparatuses of Hellenistic word workers, just as scholars derisive toward those characters have done. Whereas they detect democratic decay, however, I see a continuation of commitments outlined in the previous chapter and in political conditions less restrictive of public verbal activity than once thought. Now, that alliteration must have taken, I mean, did you do, like, is this just a thing that happens for you now? Or did you have to really work that? Because that is an incredible three sentences.
1: Well, thank you. I would say that alliteration comes very naturally and oh, I have so to, uh, I have to edit it out a lot because <laughs> I don't really know I'm doing it most of the time. <laughs> oh my gosh.
0: But it also, there's nothing like and so-called scholarly apparatuses of Hellenistic word workers. Oh, so good. <laughs> what were you going to say? Just
1: that also, one of the joys of writing this book which was reading everyone I write about in it because they're they're all marvelously good writers. That's
0: true. And yeah, you gotta like up translate the game, right? them.
1: Yeah, the people that translate them are also very good writers, and and mm-hmm. so I kind of felt like it made a certain sense to create a book that would sound like those whose work I was engaging throughout. Yeah. But I can tell you that <laughs> this is how I would like to write all of the time but one, I don't know if that's sustainable. And two, I think it can be really incongruous in a way that reviewers have called me out for before. I've been oh told yeah. Join the like, club,
0: join the club, squirrel friend. Like for sure. Yeah. Like I've been told my exuberance is off-putting. I've told <laughs> you, that you gotta um, read the, there's too much yeah, You got to read the Gertrude Stein book by Sharon Kirsch. Cause when Gertrude Stein, who for the listeners, if you haven't listened to the, the, the Gertrude Stein interview with Sharon Kirsch, it's on the new books network, but we talk about the, the Stein um, and Stein got so railed for her poetry. And there's a really great quote from one of her, like papers she turned in that, that somebody has in an archive. And at the top, the professor just wrote, your vehemence runs away with your syntax. And I was like, oh my God, I want people to say that about me. It made me, it made me think of like the, the reviewers being like, your exuberance and clever wordiness has no business in a field about exuberance and clever wordiness. <laughs>
1: Well, in my limited experience with books, I can say that I've been able to Cody fingers get away with it a lot more than I have been able to in a journal article.
0: Yeah, I am I'm starting to mentor some new book writers that are especially people who've been stuck on their dissertation for a couple of years and like really need to get their books done in in part just because the mental fatigue it's taking on them to have this unfinished product. And in part because I like tenure requirements and stuff. But I like to I like to think that there's more to it than just getting a job. And a lot of the problem is like reviewers have I don't want to say traumatized because we use that word way too much lately, but they've really done a number on their self-worth and self-esteem. And they think they have to write a book. Like a journal reviewer is going to review it and they just don't understand. It's different. It's very it's a different Different artifact. It's a different process. The reviewers are different types of like kinds of people you get. And they just like, don't know. Nobody's telling them like, look, reviewer number two is not reading your book because those people typically are not writing books. They're really great journal reviewers. And that's what they do. They keep vigilant watch. <laughs> on our journals, but that doesn't leave a a lot of time for them to open up and write a book. So you don't wind up with those people gatekeeping books for better or for worse. And so you get to like loosen up and God, it makes for such a better book. I mean, I read nothing but books, Michelle. And like, it's really great to read a book that is truly just a joy to read because you loosened up some of these unnecessary constraints that have been artificially imposed on us, you know?
1: Thank you. I tried. I figured,
0: uh, oh, win, you know, it was worth it. I just, everything about it. Okay. Do you want to do one more hit or we can, I can continue to praise you. Do you want more praise? Cause I got it. I got lots of it. <laughs> or we can go
1: <laughs> well, back that's, to your that's text. Very, that's very tempting, but I think, I think I'll move us into the concluding chapter.
0: Let's do it. I that's should good say idea. when
1: I, when I submitted this manuscript, there wasn't a conclusion. Part of wow. it was, as I mentioned earlier, I, I wrote it under pretty yeah. harsh conditions and <laughs> I just didn't really thing. have anything left. And so I just kind of um, dropped my mic and then was told I, Oh, really, you need to go back and pick up your microphone again. Cause you're not done. Yeah, and so that was right. a little humbling, but I do think writing the conclusion ended up helping me understand actually what I had done in the book
0: oh, that's nice. Well, there's a, the, who knew the conclusion yeah, what the conclusion
1: was supposed to do for a change. Well, I've never had that happen before in any length of writing where the conclusion actually is an aha moment for me, oh, but wow. I've been talking with other people about it. And I, I think that this is something that maybe it's a first book phenomenon. Maybe it's a, just a book phenomenon, but I felt click here. A lot of what I think I was doing in earlier chapters, but wasn't fully cognizant of it, which mm. is trying to underscore that these people around whom I've usually built solitary chapters. So you know, Cicero has his own chapter, and Horace has his own chapter. That, um, and so in a way, I said that I was demythologizing the figure of the solitary genius, but then I sort of reified it again with the way I write the chapters. But in each chapter, I do mention people who are around. The writer yeah. on, on whom I'm focusing. And with the conclusion, I had an opportunity to go back and look at all of these people around the Quotey Fingers primary writers and try to imagine what it would be like to try to write this book if we knew more about those people. Mm-hmm. Because someone like Isocrates, he stops in the middle of a really long logos and he says, and this is the point at which I gave my notes to an enslaved person and they read Mm -hmm. them back to me. But we have no idea the name of that enslaved person. We don't know anything about their, their life. And I think they need to be included in the story of how we talk about these ancient works, because they are. And even though we don't have their names, we have these little moments in the texts where these people are referred to. And it's really only in the case of Cicero and his relationship with an enslaved person who was trained to be a first-rate scribe that we have someone named. And we know that Tyro was absolutely essential in terms of gathering Cicero's writings after Cicero was assassinated and making sure they were copied enough times that there were so many versions of them circulating around the ancient world that they were continually copied in one place or another. Yeah. Until, you know, Petrarch stumbled across Cicero's letter set uh, in the 14th century. He's the only name we have. So what the chapter with which I conclude attempts to do is say that uh, all bodies of work have bodies of workers behind them. And it's not only the person whose name is on the outside of the book. This is the same for my book, too. There are plenty of people here who my name in the acknowledgement sections, but there are plenty of other people who have informed the way I think and without whom I couldn't
0: have written the book that I. Yeah, for example, I notice I'm not in the acknowledgements, which I found like an affront to my dignity, if I'm being honest.
1: <laughs> well, if I could go back and I knew this would now happen, I, I could give you a shout well, out. You can
0: thank me for your second book because I'm about to write it for you, but I want you to finish what you're going to say. And then I have so many thoughts and I can't wait to share them.
1: <laughs> well, I think I'll, I'll stop there. Just that it, it's important. Mm-hmm. I think when you are writing about any ancient person that you recognize, they have uh, an entourage of fans around them. And they have also people who are there involuntarily, like enslaved people who don't have any say in the matter, but have been enlisted into the, right. the cause of this great person and whose names typically are obliterated you know, from the registries of, of history. Uh, so even though the book is in a way uh, canonical, what I'm hoping it does is show that ancient writers actually set the conditions for their own canonization. And they did this with the help of a lot of other people who are not named or usually thanked.
0: So it's so interesting you say that this was an epiphany because I this like I was like, oh, the whole time i are reading the book, I'm like, yeah, this is obviously, you also have to remember I, I'm tr- I like read a lot of books so I, and I take a lot of book workshops and I think about books a lot, even though I'm not like a great writer of any means, but I like thinking about structures of books. And I was like, yeah, she's totally doing that thing where she comes up with the minor thread. She's got the major thread and then she's got the minor thread. The minor thread is totally the side characters. They're go- and, and the reason is because your first sentence in the acknowledgements, and maybe you wrote the acknowledgements at the end when it already clicked. Your first, you just said it. I am delighted here to demythologize the figure of the solitary genius. I have not been solitary. And I thought you were going to then do that. I thought that was going to be the sentence that you conclude with. As I thought you were going to open the conclusion with a mirror of that to give the book like, which you did. You just didn't do it. I thought you, you're so clever. I was like, oh, she's definitely going to mirror this as the concluding sentence. Which is cool, especially because nobody reads the acknowledgments. So you'd have that sort of like, we don't pay attention to the minor figures that people think kind of thing going on. So I actually over anticipated how cool you were going to be to now find out that all of this was just a happy accident.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, but it was brewing. You can tell do. it was brewing. I think it Go was on. brewing. And I think the other yeah. thing ancient writers do is they really like the ring composition where they start with some kind of theme or image and then they right. end on that same theme or image. So I yeah. think you know, that's such a, an important pattern for ancient writers that it may have been in my head as well. I think but I was, find probably. also just, um, for better or worse, a lot of my writing is, is quite, I work hard, but a lot of it is also intuitive and I have to really mm-hmm. step back from it and look at it to recognize what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And there were a couple of moments in this book when I had to do that because I felt like, something hadn't clicked yet. Like all the pieces were in place, but I didn't yeah. really have kind of wherewithal to place emphasis on the right spots and the conclusion. So I'm really glad that the reviewers told me you really need the conclusion on this thing. And that between when I sent the manuscript in, and when I got that directive,
0: you, you know, time for me to marinate Elapsed,
1: And yeah. I got, yeah, I got distance from it and I realized what I was really doing and what the stakes were and, why I really wanted to write this book in the first place and mm-hmm. I'm glad that I figured that out in time enough to write a conclusion that reflected that
0: yeah I mean it's just so well done it's amazing that you didn't plan that 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 happened just by accident because maybe I did it, I'm glad it did because <laughs> honestly if, if this hadn't been the conclusion to the rest of the book I would have been really like where's that conclusion about all these minor characters because I expected it the whole way through now maybe that's because you revised once you knew Good. the conclusion I don't know, but it was set up to be this way the whole time. So that's really interesting that you couldn't see that. It's so weird how we can't see stuff that's in our own writing, isn't it? I know. Thank yeah. God for reviewers. I'll say it. I love reviewers. I know people get cranky about them, but they, they play some really, like, they have a conclusion. Absolutely. Did they suggest it? or So you went back and you marinated on what the conclusion could be in this sort of evolved.
1: They wanted the conclusion.
0: Yes. They just wanted a conclusion. Okay.
1: And they wanted one of the chapters gone. So I had a whole chapter on a pretty body poet called Catullus. Mm-hmm. Which is Latin for, or very close to the Latin for puppy, and so he has this kind of boundless energy. And a lot of his poems are are quite charming, but a lot of them are are not. <laughs> um, they're very tacky, or um, they feature sexual violence used metaphorically as a way of talking about the writer-critic relationship.
0: Oh my so god! One of
1: my readers was really uncomfortable with my engagement with those poems, and asked oh, dude, you, you got to publish chapter.
0: that. Oh, you got to publish it though separately. It sounds amazing well thank I mean, it you. sounds terrifying but, but that like that one yeah that one just got the axe I was told get rid of that out of confusion yeah. Huh. well I hope it comes out someplace else because I think like I think it sounds like a text that needs to be engaged so speaking of which I have your next book idea if you haven't already thought of it <laughs> okay let's hear it well I'm thinking you write like a counter narrative about like mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of a pun on like the canon but if you think of all the like enslaved underappreciated people that actually helped produce the canon if you had a name for like the anti-canon canon but it makes me think mm. of like Toni Morrison's playing in the dark where she goes through and traces all of the like black Africanist others as she puts it that's my that's not my phrase that's her phrase just to be clear that haunt some of these great works of literature right so the the, the slave girl who's in uh, Willa Cather's I forget the name of the damn but it says something something in the slave girl and which we would now say enslaved girl. Again, I'm I'm quoting here. And so Morrison goes back and is like, look at all the work that the enslaved woman does for this woman in this. And then there's uh Ebony, um oh shit, I'm not gonna remember Ebony Thomas's new book, which is all about the counter narratives of black characters in like fan culture like Harry Potter and uh, mm-hmm. Hunger Games. And she like imagines these like larger roles for these people as a way of kind of helping like especially younger people of color like recognize their own value when they've been devalued in the margins of text and now it's like mm. oh my god Michelle you could do that for the canon and you've got half the book already written and I would read it because that's that because now you get to pick up the thread it would be really interesting I don't know if, I don't think you want to. I mean I would never go back and rewrite a book about something I'd already written on because I'm so tired of it by the time I'm done but
1: <laughs> I'm I actually really keen it. to do that I'm really keen to do that but there are two classicists who are writing books right now about oh great the about um, slavery and the Roman book perfect, perfect. Uh, Patrice Rankin who's now a, a professor at University of Chicago is one. okay and Joseph Rankin Howley in Chicago. who's a classicist yeah who, um, Joseph Howley is a classicist at Columbia is also working on that topic and I think they each have graduate students who are also working on similar well
0: topics. never mind let's not do that so I will reach out to them then and read their book and I will eagerly await your second book on something different. <laughs> also you know that's thorny territory too because it's like on the one hand it's like when you see all these movies like hidden figures come out and you're like yeah black women did it the whole time and it's like part of it is like great like credit absolutely like, finally you know but then the other part's sort of like it's revisionist history and now we think oh like now we've given them their credit so it's that's a thorny line to walk too, between like what what are you contributing to when you Reclaim voices that were not included originally and also sometimes the archives are really sparse like with like we look at this with like all the medical controversy over Henrietta Lacks and and um the three enslaved women um, whose names a- Anarcha, Betsy, and Lucy. It's like how much do we want to counter narrative them because to what degree does that sort of absolve us from so that would have been a, a tricky but you you do a great job with it currently right because they remain very much this reminder that these men were not like autonomous right no man is an island kind of thing right yeah so it functions really well in the current in- in manifestation for sure
1: well yeah i don't know what um what doctors rankin and hallie have have planned and i don't know how far along they are in in their works but i think these books will be whatever they do um Will be incredibly consequential for classics, definitely. And I hope people in rhetorical studies will read them as well.
0: Well, I think one of the things your book really does is remind us like why classicists are important. I think a lot of times um rhetoricians and and I don't know, for people listening, I don't know if these like these disciplines matter a lot to some people and not a lot to others. So I don't mean to like repeat the discipline wars because I don't know that they're actually that true for a lot of people anymore. But rhetoricians. And by that, I mean like speech people like myself who tend to look at, like you said, with Ted Cruz, we tend to like mine classics, classicists for like base, like a little bit of etymology here, a little bit of reference quote there, a little bit of clarification here or there, but we repeat so many mistakes as a result of that. And we, we repeat so many, like, I can't even imagine how many times you read somebody's use borrowing of Homer or borrowing from Ovid and having written this book, you're like, Oh my God, please don't do this. Please contextualize this a little bit more. Just because you're importing really damaging myths, and now we're seeing like this rise of like white misogynistic fascism, and that shit is often rooted in classicism, in classism, in bad understandings, right? In in certain inherited bad histories of the classics. Yeah,
1: I think that's spot on. I think, and that's, I think, why the area of classical reception, that is the study of the uptake of classical materials in different contexts is so fascinating, but it's, it's, it's tough work because um, calling out, you know, the red pill community for uh, misappropriating Ovid, for instance, doesn't really get you anywhere. <laughs> no, I know. Yeah. And, and this is something that that other classes have have written about. I was talking about Donna Zuckerberg's book with you before we started recording, mm-hmm. all not all dead white men, where she looks at the uptake and circulation of ancient materials, usually Roman stuff, in these red pill misogynist communities and you know charging in there with your copy of your metamorphosis opened and saying you know you used a bad translation of this just doesn't get you anything but people laughing in your face
0: which is so fucked up it's like how is it that you get all this cred for knowing bad metamorphosis but i actually know it. And i mean i know what the answer is it's racism and patriarchy but it's like god it's infuriating to my brain (laughs) like it's like brain explode I, I hear you, but I will also say that, you know,
1: one thing that I um, really full credit to classicists is that, you know, maybe bringing in a an old, you know, because Ovid has translated differently every couple of decades, but all the current translations out there are really not honest about how much uh, sexual violence and, and outright rape there is in yeah. the book, because it's translated in, in these very kind of already circumlocution so there's a classist called Stephanie McCarter who's working on a mm-hmm. translation of, of Ovid's metamorphosis of, Ovid, of right? Yeah. yeah and I think you know and she is being honest about what's going on in these poems so yeah, I think she... you know once her translation becomes the dominant one um, then it's going to be hard for people to appropriate Ovid in ways that that don't include that language overtly
0: yeah she's a Suwani right she is I interviewed there and I wanted to meet her so bad, but she was in a different department um, because that school is like bad. It's like in Appalachia. It's like, it thinks it's Harvard. It's super rich. And like, oh shit. I'm not shit talking because they didn't hire me. I'm shit talking to them because of the research I did later. And, but you know, it's like weird. It's weirdly interesting and the faculty they hire because they hire people like McCarter and then they support her to do it, to, to be able to become at this little tiny school. And I think they have this cool like interdisciplinary humanities program that they pioneered at school. It's so weird, but man, I wanted to meet her so bad when I was there, but I couldn't, I was like in a job interview. I couldn't be like, can I go interview with this person? Who has no bearing on my, my, on whether or not I get to work here, but oh, I would have loved to work with her. Oh my gosh.
1: I would, I would love to meet her too. I think I attended every single zoom event she did last year.
0: We'll tell you what, <laughs> when the Ovid metamorphosis comes out, I don't think it's out yet. I will no. email and you and I can meet and talk to her about the book. Oh my gosh, I would love that. Yeah, well, let's see if I can make it happen. Shockingly, people don't seem to always respond to my emails because I'm not the big deal I think I am. Well, Michelle, I'm sure our oh, readers are enjoying me, enjoying this banter, but I think we should probably call it. Uh, this has been amazing. I have loved this book as much as I love your personality and I would like to close by reading this adorable, uh, I don't know what you call these things. Are they epitaphs? It's, it's the little blurb, the book blurb on the back from Susan Jarrett. Another one of our oh, famous, yes, another one of our famous fight the patriarchy classicists because her description of this book is so short and so perfect. So Susan writes or Dr. Jarrett, I don't know how Susan would like to be referred to or Dr. Jarrett, uh, Michelle Kennerly's editorial bodies is a daring and delightful study. The labor of the file, aside editorial work on written versions of Roman orations, is the focus of this highly original monograph. prepared to be dazzled by Kennerly's erudite engagement with the ancient source languages, and her own carefully wrought style. And wrought is such a good word for this too, because it is very wrought. I can imagine <laughs> I, can, I can. imagine that you enjoyed that quite a bit. Uh,
1: yeah, I, I would say that um, yes, getting those words from Susan Jarrett is uh, not a small deal.
0: <laughs> oh, and I still have another question. I need to ask this because it's important. Um, do you, do you get pushback or do you even perceive issues or how do you navigate, however you want to answer this about the, you know, cause like there's a lot of like bodies were like the thing for a while in our field. And then of course yeah. there's a lot of critique of bodies as a blah, blah, blah. And so obviously there's nothing ableist about this book because you're not writing, you know, you're just noticing that bodies and it makes sense that nobody, nobody would have been self-reflexively thinking about bodies as a problematic metaphor 2000 years ago, but do you have any issues with the body centrism of this work or to you, is it like, look, that's the metaphor of the time. This is, and I'm not at all like perpetuating that body should be our center. Now I'm just saying, this is what they did. And here's the pros and cons or whatever you want to think about that of like what it meant for that to organize this like huge group of writers and their helpers. Sure. Well,
1: I would say that the book largely excavates a prominent metaphor So I went where the metaphor was, but I don't think that that ever licenses anyone to write about things that set as normative um, harms. (laughs) And so I would add that uh, looking back at the introduction, when I describe why it is that the metaphor of the body is so generative, I don't say anything about ability. And I think that's, I don't. And I, I think that if I were writing this work now, I would definitely speak to that. I think one reason why I didn't also was because I don't work with any of the poetry where poets talk about their metrical schemes in terms of ability and disability. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So the elegiac couplet, for instance, is, has one shorter um, count than epic hexameter. And so Ovid likes to play around by saying that his verses hobble and mm-hmm. i think you know that's yeah. the kind of thing that i would have if i were writing about his love poetry and not his work from exile which is not er- erotic at all <laughs> the opposite i would have definitely written more about ability and disability but i chose i just didn't go with that poetry and then didn't end up analyzing that facet of embodiment in the introduction but i think okay. even though i didn't i probably you know, could have stood to have mentioned that more explicitly.
0: Yeah. And I don't necessarily think it's a critique. I just, it's something that I'm thinking about And this book, you know, 2018. So what you finished writing it in 2017 and like, it, it's hard to attend to everything that we want to attend. And I'm noticing one of the things that's slipping through in my writing is, especially as a visual critic is um, ableism. Like I'm, I'm letting, I'm not really attentive to ableism in part because there's a lot of like fields to cover and you have to cover every one of them well. And so if you're covering race and white supremacy and rhetoric and like, you know, or in your case, if you're covering, if you're trying to like revive, really it's hard, but so I don't think it's a criticism. I am, I'm just trying to like be, be mindful and ask people how they're navigating disability when they're not disability scholars, because I think that's something we're all going to have to think really hard about as we move forward.
1: I think that's right. And I would say that within Classics. Uh, Debbie Sneed is someone who whose work Sneed? I would have okay. used. Yeah, Sneed. I'll check Sneed out. And um, I know I read a piece recently in one of the classical reception journals about the need for a disability frame in classical reception work. Mm but I forget who authored that piece. Apologies to those authors. <laughs> I can't recall their names.
0: It's all right. I'll look it up. And if I can I'll put it in the show notes. Also, I need to get into this classical reception literature. I didn't even know that was a field. Like I need another field to learn, but I'll at least read it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's really intriguing stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, it's important. I mean, like everybody thinks like nobody cares about that's the thing. Everybody thinks we live in an anti-intellectual culture now. So like this shit doesn't matter, but that's not how it's not a binary. It's not like anti-intellectualism means no intellectualism. It means a particular kind of intellectualism that serves power is okay. But any other kind of intellectualism is like, ugh, you know, it's like, oh, you and your facts kind of thing. And so we got to be careful of that because just because we're in an anti-intellectual environment, I don't even know if I want that word. I just know that's what people say. That doesn't mean people aren't citing, like you said, doesn't mean Cruz isn't pulling out as or like all of a sudden in the Texas heartbeat bill, everybody's suddenly a biblical scholar. And, and you're like, what are you like? I would like an actual biblical scholar with, tr- with training. Who's not paid and bought for by anti-choice coalitions to like, actually tell me what's going on now. Also, I don't care. Cause it's the Bible, but even if we're going to like agree that the Bible gets to be quoted, I, it's just, it's really interesting how everybody can get access to being the authority in those cases. But like, if we try to step in, it's like, maybe we're the authority. Everyone's like, Nope. <laughs> Fuck you on your PhD.
1: <laughs> well, I think yeah, distributed authority is one area that classical reception takes really seriously. And so, for instance, you can find amazing threads from uh, classics grad students about the Lizzo Cardi B rumors video. Oh where my god, i love that. out I
0: so much. The classics students are writing it, about that.
1: Oh yes, they are. Yes. Oh
0: what? Oh, I gotta get more good at internet. <laughs> I'm gonna Google this while you talk
1: um yeah i'm trying to think of the best place to direct you
0: no no we can talk about that later but i will um i will be going down the rabbit hole today oh yes yeah, somebody somebody put a piece in conversation back in august i love the conversation from grace mcgowan i'm gonna read all of this oh my god i love this video so much <laughs> did they do anything with Lil nas x's montero at all oh heck yes
1: yeah okay i'm gonna i'm gonna go down the hole. yeah about- uh grad students uh, or i guess I'm not really sure about their relationship to academic institutions at the moment, but Vanessa Stovall and mm-hmm. Kieran um, yep. Mansukhani, I believe, they contributed something to the Society for Classical Studies blog in which they parse Montero. From it's Uh
0: Yes. that cla- I don't know. You said the Classical Studies blog, but I don't know of any other one, so I'm hoping that's the right one. Okay, well, I'm going to go. Well, it's, Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, readers, listeners, if you'd like to join me in going down the rabbit hole of Lizzo and rumors, I will post the links in the show notes. But the more important focus of our conversation, I'd like to bring it back to Michelle's excellent work that clearly has so much applicability to our daily lives, is editorial bodies, perfection and rejection in ancient rhetoric and poetics. Two very important dyads that Michelle has kept an eye on throughout the book, and it's available from University of South Carolina Press. Shout out to South Carolina Press and all the university presses. Uh, they, I, I'm not saying systems are perfect, but they do a lot of work. Uh, most of us don't make any money on these books. So for those of you thinking Michelle is raking in the dough on this, I have to assume that she may in fact have lost lost money on the book if, if my own experience has been any indication. And so <laughs> they need your support. And one way to, to keep work like Michelle's coming out. So one way to do that is to pick up a copy of the book. Another way to do that is to get one and give it as a gift, The holiday season upon us. I'm sure the assist in your life <laughs> has already read it, but the novice class classicist in your life might like it. And you can also get a copy and donate it to a local library, which is a very nice thing to do because lots of people want to read this stuff and do not have the means. So they would love a donation. You can also request that your library pick one up, but budgets being what they are, that's obviously maybe not available. Um, even my library really is, is putting the the kibosh on book requests. Although I did request me you buy your book, so hopefully they approve it. And with that, I'll just say goodbye and it's been wonderful chatting with you. I hope the listeners have enjoyed it. I'm trying to up the banter that might, I get emails periodically. There's not enough banter. So hopefully this (laughs) surpassed your expectations and now I will get email. There is too much banter. And Michelle, do you want to take the last word?
1: I will. First of all, thanks to you, Dr. Lee Pierce. This was a lot of fun and farewell to all the listeners. Thank you. Mm